welcome to episode 12 of Behold Her, a podcast that shines a spotlight on women in the world of tabletop RPGs. I'm your host, Lisa Penrose, and today we are talking about <sighs> love. This episode is a wild one, with interview guests like Linda Lowry, a New York Times bestselling writer who got her start writing HeartQuest books for TSR, and Mackenzie DeArmas, an RPG tour de force and sometimes dungeon master of One on One, a D&D duet actual play. At Behold Her Podcast, we believe the experiences of the woman or non-binary gamer are as diverse as we are as individuals, and that applies to the concept of love as well. This episode's audio story comes from Luciella Scarlett, an aromantic, asexual writer who expresses her view of love and romance through game design. Before we jump into this lovely episode, I want to express a special thank you to our sponsor, RPG Writer Workshop, for making Luciella's audio story possible. If you want to write a tabletop RPG, but aren't sure where to start, the workshop is for you. They have tons of free resources, free or extremely affordable courses that are often offered with scholarships as well. So check them out at rpgwriterworkshop.com. Okay, let's talk love. Linda Lowry is an award-winning author of more than 60 books for young readers, and it all started with a bit of inspiring tenacity and TSR. In our interview, Linda talks about transitioning careers as a single mother working in the Playboy office, what it was like playing games with the OG D&D team, and how HeartQuest came to be. Get ready to be inspired. So Linda, thank you so much for joining me for Beholder. Typically, guests that have been on Beholder have been super duper entrenched in Dungeons and Dragons or role-playing games. This is a different type of interview. I'm really excited. <laughs> it is different. I'm not such a gamer, but I sure wrote books, you know, about them with uh, TSR and Dungeons and Dragons. So yeah, I um, feel it's like a pleasure you- to be here. Oh, thank you. I feel like I'm really excited to hear your perspective on the early days of D&D. Uh, but first, folks might be wondering, well, why is Linda brought on as a, as a guest? And it is because you are one of the authors of the HeartQuest series of books uh, back in the 1980s. For those who didn't get to experience HeartQuest then or now, what is it? TSR, in, uh, which you probably know, started Dungeons & Dragons in Lake Geneva, Wisconsin. TSR stands for Tactical Studies Rules. So they started off doing the, the handbooks, and then they decided to create children's books so that they could target the market and get kids interested at a very early age. So I started with an Endless Quest book, and then about a year later... I was talking with my editor and she said, you know, we'd really like to start targeting girls. We've got way more boys who are reading these books than guys. And so she really came up with the idea of a romance series and it would be called Heart Quest and it would be just the same endless quest adventure, but there would be romance involved. Well, my my first reaction I remember was, oh no, this is so (laughs) gross. I mean, I'm not putting romance into these, you know. And then this was, you know, the second book that I had written as a children's writer. And I was just dying to get into the market and start writing for kids. And I can tell you that story later sometime if you want. But at the time then, I said, you know what, I'll just go for this. And once I started, I had a ball. Because the first book was called Secret Sorceress. And as most of your listeners probably have experienced, we as women sometimes really have strong intuitive powers, magical powers, if you will. And I wanted to write this book about how I felt really about having creative powers or some kind of intuitive powers that I was afraid to share because it would not exactly attract men they might be afraid of it. So mm-hmm. I had a really good time writing it. Yeah, that's actually, um, that's the book of yours uh, that I've read. And at the whole <laughs> start, the main character really is struggling with, well, I have these powers, but I dare not tell anybody, but oh, here's this really alluring figure, but what if he knew the truth? That's really interesting. Uh, were there other right. ways that uh, that struggle that you felt manifested in that book? 
Oh, actually, writing the books was because at the time I had my son, I was a single mom raising him in 1980. And at the time, I was working at Playboy. Not as a bunny, mm-hmm. <laughs> but I was working as convention sales manager. And I had a secret dream that I wanted to be a writer. I'd always written. I was so afraid to send anything out to really try my hand at it. I didn't study it. I hadn't told anybody. And here I have this son, and my dream was to be able to stay home with him and write children's books. So I had a great fear of failure, and I had a great fear that people would say, how can you possibly quit a good job and go on to be a writer, which I did after my first book with, with uh, after my first D&D book, I said, I know I can do this. I am going for it, man. And I quit Playboy. It just didn't like mesh, you know, I would mm-hmm. be carrying him on my tummy, you know, or around my chest and through the Playboy Resort showing customers, you know, and I'm going, what's wrong with this picture? I am going to do it. I'm going to go for what I really, really want. And it was a struggle, but, you know, it was my beginning. And I published over 65 children's books since. And uh, it was my way that I wanted to express, I suppose it was my secret power. And, yeah. you know, like to, <laughs> to tell anybody yeah, I'm quitting my job. I know I'm a single mom, but I know I can do this. I did not get much support. I'll tell you that. You made Especially, it happen. I made it happen. Especially since it was D&D books. They didn't have a great reputation at that time in the area. You know, people thought that we were teaching kids witchcraft and bad things, and I didn't. So I yeah, so pursued it. That kind of- Leads me to my next question, which is, how did you end up being involved with TSR for that first book and Heart and then HeartQuest? Well, <laughs> it's kind of a funny story. I was in a little house living across the street from Rose Estes. And Rose Estes had written the very first en- Endless Quest books. So she was the grandmother of all the children's books written for D&D. Mm-hmm. And I was at a party at her house and and I told her about my dream. Said I really, Rose, I really want to write one of those books. And she said, okay, go ahead. Just write it and bring it to me. So I spent the whole spring and the whole summer writing the, the Spell of the Winter Wizard. I figured out how to do the plot tree on my own based on her book. And I go over to her house in fall with the manuscript. And she answers the door and she goes, what's this? I said, it's the book. It's, you know, it's, it's the endless quest book. <laughs> and she said, I don't know why you brought this to me. They don't accept freelancers. I work for the company. And I said, Rose, you told me. And she said, I tell everybody that. But nobody <gasps> ever comes back to me with a manuscript. Rose! <laughs> Rose, I please. Get rid of people, you know. <laughs> so, so I did the, you know, the most courageous thing and stood at her doorstep and burst into tears. <laughs> Oh, you have to do it. I wrote this. I really want this. This is what I really want. Please, I figured it all out. I think you're going to like it. So she uh, says, okay, I'll take it to Gary Gagax, who owned the company and started the company. And uh, But she said, don't hold your breath because they don't really want to work with freelance people. And then at the beginning of winter, she comes over and knocks on my door and she said, put your coat on. It was snowing out. She goes, let's go for a walk in the snow. She said, you'll remember this day for the rest of your life. You just got accepted as our first freelancer. (laughs) Oh, my gosh. Oh, man. And the money was terrible. You know, it it was like galactic rights for 1500 bucks. And Mm -hmm. then the book was very popular. It went into nine languages. And it was a biggie. And I had just a, a contract for work for hire and but that was okay it was my start <laughs> oh my gosh what a dream I'm like tearing you're such a storyteller I'm like tearing up I'm so moved by this <laughs> <laughs> well it was like I say it was a struggle but what a fun way to begin really I, I felt so proud of myself I must say and uh so I just kept going just kept going you really and then did actually, pick your path was, 
Yeah, I did take my path. I did. And I've been on an endless quest since, Lisa. <laughs> <laughs> so what did you know of D&D writing your first D&D book? Or was there anything that you learned along the way? Oh, I knew absolutely nothing. The first thing I did was got the handbook and I studied it and I studied Rose's books. I think she had already written maybe five of these middle grade books. And so I learned all about frost giants and gelatinous cubes and all the things that were D&D at the time. You know, it was very, uh, I mean, now it's so complicated in all of these worlds and what and what you women do is is amazing. Then it was just the beginning. So there were orcs and, you know, there were some basic creatures to work with. And so I, um, I just, I, I actually, when I was going to, um, you were going to call me on this, I, I went back and I had saved all of my notes from when I wrote that first book. <gasps> oh my and goodness. so I have charts and charts of who do I want to use? What kind of creatures do I want in there? What are their powers? All that. So it's all, it's all here. <laughs> Did the TSR folks ever get you into a game of D&D? Yes, they were all gamers. And so, you know, they would do tabletop and they sometimes wore costumes and man, they were into it because this was their creation. So the energy was incredible, but they were way over my head. You know, I was just, I was a baby D&Der. So I would um, <laughs> mostly watch, I was, you know, so I would mostly watch and plus, the games would go way into the night or into the morning. And so I, um, I had my son to go home to. I needed to leave. <laughs> but it, it was a world that I felt I was watching more than being in. But when some of these guys would read the manuscripts for the book and take a look at what I was doing and we'd talk over lunch or something, they were cool. They were like really impressed with how much I had learned. <laughs> That's amazing. I mean, you mentioned, goodness, the energy being in that room with the creators of D&D, that it was palpable. That That's really cool that folks were, were dressed up and really into it. Are there any particular stories or moments that stand out in your mind from those days? There's one very strange one. Gary Gygax was quite a figure as the owner of this company. And one day I went in to see my editor and I was in the lobby of TSR and I'm hearing this man who I had never met yelling at my editor and saying, that is not a moral choice. That decision should never have been in that book. And then when he said that Luna Moth was, was protected, yes, she was disabled and that whoever he was, alchemist, had given her everything. She should not have been given the choice to leave him. And I knew it was my book. And I'm going, oh, no. what do you mean it's an immoral choice to, to leave the, basically, you know, the man who's imprisoned you in a cage and this is your chance to be free. And it was so, I mean, when I look at it, it's just so silly to think of yelling over a Luna Moth who makes the decision to be free. But I remember leaving. I did not want the confrontation. And so afterward, my, my editor said, well, I guess we'll have to have Gary read everything before it gets published because he's oh, pretty picky about choices. And for me, that really shows too how sexist it was. You know, this is how sexist can you be that a female Lunamoth can't leave this owner who, who's been cruel to her because he's taken care of her. I'm curious, actually. Um, obviously, there were, were women uh, involved in the early days of D&D, but also was like a generally male-dominated hobby. Did you face any challenges as a woman writer, also writing this series of books targeted toward young girls because of that? Actually, writing the, the romances was not difficult until it came to art. Because you always write. First, you know, I think you probably know you write the story first, it gets edited, and you make illustration suggestions. And then your manuscript goes to the art department. And the guys in the art department were awesome. I, I you know, they were very creative and terrific. But they had this habit of sexualizing the young girls. Now, Secret Sorcerers, when I saw the cover, 
I was enraged. I was just enraged. He had done this spectacular cover of a girl with big tits with uh, metal, like a metal bra on. And she was so sexy. And Mm -hmm. I just said, no. I said, no. And I didn't really have power, I felt, you know. But that time I said, I would rather pull the book than have it go out and have her be like that. You know, it was sexual art to me. And so my editor said, okay, it's not going to go over well, but we'll see. And sure enough, within days, he came back with what I think is just an awesome cover. It was romantic and the guy was in the background and he wasn't leering at her and she was wearing embroidered clothes that are beautiful with feathers in her hair. And it, it, it all worked out well, but yes, I definitely had to speak up. Yeah. As like a young, early in your writing career and gosh, like just speaking up on something like that must've been a scary choice or was it like not even like it just, there was no other choice for you. There was no other choice. I mean, even though it was the beginner and I knew this could ruin the beginning of this career I was hoping for and what was I going to do? No, I was not going to have my character portrayed that way as if she needed to be sexual in order for her to show power. It really made me angry, but it was a tough, yeah, it was scary. It was a really scary decision because it was a male heavy handed society there. I wish I could say that we've moved past strong female characters with big boobs in weird metal armor. We haven't. I think D&D has, but I feel like as a society, that's still something I see a lot in fantasy art, that weird like bikini armor. It is. It's bikini armor. That's it. There's a name for it. Yeah. I didn't know if that was still really going on and if it's all done by male artists. Is, is that why, or do women artists do that too? That's a good question. I want to say that it's a lot of art kind of drawn through the male gaze, but you know what? I don't know that 100% for certain. I think it's kind of become a part of the genre, but I also, I'd say, equally see folks who make a point to, I don't know, draw strong women in actual real armor that would protect them. Yeah, right. Because they, I mean, men aren't portrayed that way. They don't have open flies on men's armor. Oh (laughs) my goodness. Just in order, you know, just in order to say, here is a powerful figure. And for some reason, that fantasy art just developed that way. If a woman is strong, it means she has to be sexy. Like that is her power, right? of enchantment and enticement and that's not romantic to me and that was not what these heart quest books were supposed to be about at all they got the girls market but they weren't a big success because D basically was still attracting guys in those days i wonder what heart quest would be if it if they revamped it today because there are a lot of women who and girls who are involved in D. But I feel like it would just have to be like endless quest books about heroines. You know, I, I think it's awesome, Lisa. I think you should do it. <laughs> oh, my God. Somebody should do it. I'm serious. Because we were just, you know, experimenting here. And now the fields of romance and role playing have both become huge markets. And I think in the endless quest books, it's time, it's time to bring those back. There are a few now that I've seen on the market. And I think with that twist to it, it could really empower girls. All heroines. I think that'd be really good. So then let me selfishly pick your brain about Pick Your Path, since you were involved really early in the genre. And you said you figured it out yourself. So I I feel like for writing a book normally, you kind of figure out the plot and and the path and like where the adventure is going to go. Like you outline it. But for a pick your path, there's so many different endings. How do you even approach that? How did you, well, how about, let me re-ask this question. How did you figure it out your first time? And what did you learn from that for future projects? I started with the plot. So you set up your plot and maybe 
maybe it's the premise only. You know, if a girl has powers and she wants to hide them, but then there is something that she has to do to survive, that's it. You know, you set up your plot. Then you've got, instead of one outline, you outline three sections. I did it first. I actually drew pictures of how I saw her going through the kingdoms, right? And where everything was. And then I divided things into part A, part B, part C. So in the first one, I'm actually looking at Winter Wizard. So it's not the plot for Moon Dragon Summer or Secret Sorcerers. But one of them is you and your reindeer, Cornelius Sylvan, set out across the frozen tundra to find help in fighting the army of the wizard. And then you journey to Oogle at the Frost Giant's castle, and he and his silver pegasi fly to the north, blah, blah, blah. And then I did 15 little sections under that. So in part A, that's what happens. And it's very short chapters. You know, wars and in the orcs, they kidnap your grandpa or whatever. And then you start off in a different way. Now, part B, you choose, you're traveling through the forbidden forest with a Luna moth to light your way, rather than you're traveling across the frozen tundra. Part C would be you journey someplace else, maybe the rocky coast, where you'll find halflings on an island who will show you an underwater tunnel you're all going eventually to the same place but you're traveling different ways so you set up the premise right and you've got part a b and c Mm -hmm. so right in the beginning of the book then when the reader reads the setup and you know you need to be the hero the heroine and what are you going to do and how are you going to do it that's when you make your choice so you can Mm -hmm. choose to go one way and so then you turn to page 96. You can choose not to do the adventure and you turn to page 16 and you die, right? You choose not to (laughs) do the adventure. You're miserable. You know, your life really sucks. You marry this guy who your mom wants you to marry and you're just droopy and, you know, and you die. (laughs) Um, The other choice is, you know, start the adventure. And so along the way, you can decide which way you're going. And as a tree, you know, let's talk plot tree. Mm-hmm. You do your premise or your plot in a rectangle at the top of the page. You're really drawing or you're doing it on the computer. Mm-hmm. And then you have two choices. You're going to do the adventure or you're not going to do the adventure. Well, everybody's going to do the adventure, right? So then you divide it into three sections so that your outline goes down the center of the page. Mm-hmm. to the right side of the page and the left side of the page. Now, each of those will be a rectangle because they're major plot lines. Do you go through the frozen tundra with your reindeer? Do you choose to go along the rocky coast? And once you have those three big sections, then you're going to outline those just like a tree coming down from there. You draw a line to a circle. You draw another line to a small, like a square. Mm-hmm. So that every time you come to a choice, any of those that end in a circle, it's an ending. You fall off the cliff. You lose the, the guy who you were attracted to. You um, use your powers in an evil way, whatever. So those end in circles. So you're looking at a big map, and the bigger the piece of paper, the easier it is. And you've got squares and circles, all over this map, but they're basically just three branches coming from the top premise. And then you just draw like a, you know, a map. And this leads to there and this leads to there. And they intersect. And sometimes maybe you're going to move from part A because you don't like this frozen tundra business. And you make a choice that you're going to find a way under the ice to get over to the Rocky Coast. Mm-hmm. And then you write each of those sections. You sure picked like uh, a real complicated genre for your first book. I don't know. It suits my personality. I kind of really loved that because you get to write little short segments. It's like tiny mm-hmm. short stories. And for some people, it might be very complicated. But if you're visual and you draw out that map, it's fun. 
you just go, well, when do I want this frost giant to come out of this huge castle? Or in another part, would I rather have her meet him on the ice and, or, and maybe her reindeer has been hurt and is he going to help or is he going to be an enemy? And it's just fun. It's kind of like life. You know, you ask yourself, you're making decisions how many times a day? Hundreds, right? Maybe thousands. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and if you're writing a novel, your storyline is your storyline, which is fine. But it suits me better to be able to choose a whole bunch of different storylines and just make them all mesh together and uh, kill off your heroine if she's not brave. <laughs> <laughs> As you wrote more and more of these pick your path adventures, were there any particular like tips or tricks you learned along the way? Yes. For writers who are listening, it can be very easy to go off on tangents. And for me, the best way to do that is to say, okay, good. I'm going to go off on a tangent. But what I'm going to do is just put these ideas into a little area on my map and just write what I I think and then get back to the main story and then go back and write your tangent. Otherwise you're going to get off on another tangent and then pretty soon you've lost your storyline. For imaginative people, you could write a story forever. Instead, you do have to have the limitations to it. And so, uh, you know, if you wanted um, some some troll to live in a cottage and you wanted to go visit this troll or you didn't want to, but maybe the man of your dreams was caught someplace nearby. You just can't get off on all kinds of ideas about that scene. So instead of moving in that direction, just write your ideas down, just have fun with it. Just look at the whole thing. And it's just like a bouquet of ideas. And then you can incorporate all of them into your story. Don't get lost in them. Yeah, that's great advice. So circling back to your early days, writing for TSR, being in that world, what did it mean to you being a woman in D&D or if you didn't see yourself that way, at least working with TSR, the folks who made D&D? I um, had a whole new vision of myself. I never thought that I would be around such creative people. Crazy creative, right? Loony creative. They <laughs> were constantly, their brains were just constantly exploding with ideas and some good, some not, whatever. But I really must say I began to see myself as a creative. I understood I belonged in that world. Because even if my uh, dreams of writing other things were there, not necessarily D&D or role-playing, man, just to be around creative people on a regular basis, and and you know that your work is going to be looked at by them, and you're going to discuss it, and you're going to hang and and just see what this role-playing stuff is all about, it made me see myself as a creative woman. And I felt great. And, And that was my secret at the time. Because anyone who had known me up to that point had never seen that side of me. But I knew this is where I belong in the creative world. And it's cool to feel that. You are such a creative soul and an inspiration just from our short chat. And I'm really happy that you're a part of D&D's history and that I got to chat with you a little bit about it. Well, that was a joy. And if you or anyone listening is serious about writing these kinds of books or even thinking about starting a new type series with girl heroines, contact me through my website and, you know, I'll help you along the way. I'll just let you know what uh, I'll help you if you're really working. I would love to support women who are want to go in that direction. And what is your website for folks listening? www.lindalowery.com. L-O-W-E-R-Y. Thanks again, Linda. It was a pleasure chatting with you. Thank you so much. Bye, Lisa. 
Are you enjoying the Behold Love episode of Behold Her so far? Help make future episodes possible, listen to episode extras, vote on episode themes, guests, and more, all at patreon.com slash beholdher. Mackenzie Day Armas is a creative force. She's a D&D writer for Matt Colville and has multiple best-selling titles on DungeonMastersGuild.com. But in this interview, we focus on One on One, a D&D duet campaign and podcast she co-created with her partner. She answers the questions, what's it like playing D&D with your significant other? And how does it impact your relationship? Welcome back to Behold Her Podcast. Uh, today, we are chatting with Mackenzie of One on One, a D&D duet campaign. Welcome to Behold Her. Oh, hi. Oh, I'm so excited to be here. This is awesome. Yeah, I've wanted to chat with you for a while, so I'm really excited uh, to have this Behold Love episode to discuss. Uh, it's great. I've, I've, like, I've, been, I've, I've admired you on Twitter from afar for so long. This is just amazing. Oh, oh, that's truly Behold Love, this love puddle right here. Before we chat about one-on-one, mm-hmm. tell me a little bit about how you got into Dungeons & Dragons and tabletop role-playing games in general. So actually, it ties really nicely into how we started, or how me and my partner started one-on-one. I had always wanted to play D&D for a very long time, but my university D&D group, when I went to the tabletop gaming club and was like, hey, do you have a D&D game? They're like, yeah, but it's already full. So sorry. So I didn't really have an outlet to play. Um, my partner, Dennis, though, um, at his school, he was able to get into a D&D group because we go to different universities. And he would tell me all his stories. And I'd listen, but I never really understood entirely what was going on since I hadn't played and hadn't understood the mechanics. So then one day, Dennis was like, hey, you know what? I found this really cool actual play where it's a bunch of voice actors who all do voices for the characters, and they're all playing Dungeons and Dragons. I think it's called Critical Role, and you should watch it. <laughs> Just because then you'll be able to maybe understand what I tell you when I um, ramble about what my wizard does in the Underdark. And I was like, okay. And so I started watching. And then I kept watching and then I surpassed where he was and kept going. And um, then we, that led us to, or that led me to pushing him to DM a one shot or two for me and my friends at the time over the summer. And then because we're, we go to different schools and we were a pretty long distance relationship. Um, what we decided to do was we both still wanted to play D and D, but since I didn't have a group, he was like, well, I can just DM a one-on-one campaign for you. And I was like, great. How about for accountability? We also make it a podcast, so we don't stop. Oh, I feel that. That's how, and that's how one-on-one came to be, was us going, if we put it out on the internet, then we have to continue it, and we can't back out because that we're not quitting on this. So that, that's how one-on-one started. Yeah, so what was the process like for him as Dungeon Master or starting out as the Dungeon Master? Or do you all take turns DMing? Like? So originally, what our plan was is that he was going to be the DM and I was going to play. That's how we did it for the first, I think, seven episodes. We took a bit of a hiatus, partly because life was happening really fast. And we both kind of were like, this is a lot. We're going to just take a break and mental health. And the other thing was I was realizing as I was starting to play more and I was playing more with other, I started getting more into tabletop role playing. I started finding my own style and finding my own style of DMing too. And I realized that my play style didn't entirely match perfectly with his. And so we sat down and talked about it and we realized that this is actually a good opportunity for us to learn from each other's play styles. I'm a very chaotic, I don't plan, imagine it, theater of the mind sort of player. And he's a very much modular, here's a quest line, here's what you want, very sort of logical puzzle piece. And so what we decided to do and what we're doing now is that every six episodes, we're switching off who DMs and who plays. So right now in the current arc, I'm DMing for his character. And then after I'm done with his character arc, we're going to switch back to my character and well, he DMs. And those two stories weave across the setting we made together and they're connected, but they're also independent characters in their own right uh, with different stories and different storytelling styles that just sort of weave across this universe we're creating as we go. I am just so fascinated by this, not just because of the format of there being one dungeon master and one player, but also that you're playing a game with your partner. And so you're having these other discussions and you're creating together. And that's just really cool. Mm -hmm. So I have like a million questions and I don't know where to start. 
How about we start with, can you give me some examples of how your different play styles may have conflicted and didn't mesh and then how you resolved that? Well, we looked at the, um, like in the first arc, I play my character in the, uh, in one-on-one is Brie, who is a, well, we recently changed it because the revised rogue uh, Unearthed Arcana came out and it fit her character really well, but she's essentially a rogue cleric who was resurrected by a god as that god's champion. In her arc, there was a lot of, not necessarily pushing, but there was divine intervention being like, hey, go save the world. And I realized that I thought it was just my character being stubborn, but it is me being a a rebellious butt and going, (laughs) but what if I didn't? Counterpoint, what if I wanted to kiss the cute barmaid instead? And and so there was a there came a point when we had to do like because Dennis very much likes politics and likes sort of looking at like bigger power structures and looking at how that sort of trickles down. And so there were a couple of times when we had sessions where it was just like my character sitting in a business meeting and like getting assigned here's some goblin tribes or are attacking shipments into this port city. So go look look at that. And there were like three things and he was like, you should go to this one first and this one first and then, and, or that one second and th- that one third. And I was like, but what if I want to go to the third one first? Mm-hmm. And he was like, but I didn't write that one yet. Okay. And so that's kind of where <laughs> we, we had some conflict. And then when I started DMing and he was playing, he plays a rogue fighter multiclass who is a thief in essentially pirate Las Vegas, trying to undermine the pirate king. And I'm a very chaotic person and I like having a lot of personal initiative when I play my characters. He very much likes getting a goal and like a reason and a mission. And so I had to, when we were playing our first couple sessions, I had to adapt quickly and be like, oh, you need a direction. Okay, wait, here's a, here's a NPC who can literally, here's a quest. There you go. It's more concrete because I'm more like, I want to do whatever I want. And he's like, give me a mission, give me a purpose. And it's taken us a little bit of, a little bit of time. And it's also, but in a good way, it's also helped communicate with each other outside of the relationship, learning how we see the world in like a really interesting way. Just as like using fantasy to be like, oh, these are areas or this is how you communicate. Oh, okay. And having that extrapolate out into our other aspects of our relationship has been really helpful. Yeah, I was just about to ask, and I don't know if this is getting like too real, but how has your D&D game affected how you communicate just as humans in the world together? For me, I know that playing D&D with him and just playing D&D in general has made me a lot more comfortable being emotionally vulnerable. For a long time, I didn't really like talking about my feelings or my emotions. I just kind of was like, we'll just put that in a box and we'll deal with it later because I don't want to bug anyone about it. And playing D&D and having to get into role play and and just learning how to role play and especially with the intimacy of a one-on-one game where you don't really have other players to bounce off of, it's just you and the DM it makes you have to really think about like how to show your character's emotions and how to communicate your character's thoughts because you don't have another char- uh, player characters to to talk to or discuss things about it. It's just you and the DM. So having to get into that mindset and being comfortable sharing my character's feelings has helped me share my own feelings. I mean, that's how I was able to work up the courage and tell that as, hey, I'm not really having as much fun as I'd like with our play styles not matching. And so let's figure out a way to do this together. I think it's also helped us in terms of looking at how to solve problems. We're definitely, I used to get really impatient because he's a very logical person, but now that I've been able to play with him, I understand, okay, this is how he looks at problems. Whereas I am sort of a run into it first, figure it out as I go. And I I understand now that's where we mesh and that's where we Mm -hmm. may have conflict. So now I can be, I'm like, okay, I can be a little bit more patient. And he's like, okay, I can be a little bit more flexible with you. And it's so it's interesting looking at how like critical problem solving and role play have really helped us become closer as partners. Yeah, that's fascinating how someone's approach to a game and their play style is a little bit removed, right? Like it's, you can see how it affects the game. And so it's interesting being able to see that and then apply that Mm -hmm. to, gosh, just the rest of your life. Yeah. And it's like we 
all of us put a little bit of ourselves into our characters. I know I put a little bit of myself into my cleric, and I know he's put a little bit of his self into his rogue. And it's given us a way to explore that sort of removed and like in a different space. And then once we exit out of that space after our sessions, we're able to reflect on it. And sometimes it's not even something that we like super discuss about, but it's just something that subconsciously sort of happens where it's like, oh, Mm -hmm. I see why you made that choice. Okay, that's cool. Cool, cool, cool. So you've touched on this a little bit in that explanation, um, but I'm wondering if you could expand. What would you say are differences between playing a role-playing game with a larger group or a quote-unquote normal-sized group and then playing one in more of like an intimate one-on-one setting like this? I think it, I mean, it depends on like the system. I've, the only one-on-one like, or like one-on-one games I've really played is like through D&D. And I know with D&D, we had to do a little bit of mechanical finicking to make it not so that our characters immediately died. But um, (laughs) for me, I think looking at it as a player, it's very much you have to trust the other person you're playing with. Like you should always be able to trust your game master and the other people around the table, but There's a lot more of an emotional tension at the table, which isn't necessarily a bad thing, but there is just because you are talking with only one other person, you only have that one sort of channel of communication. I know as a DM for a one-on-one game, like uh, when when I step into the DM's chair for for Dennis, it's a lot more of figuring out how to plan and and making sure that I don't end up up talking to myself too much and, and giving them a little bit more room to speak. And you don't have as many other people around the table to sort of give the narrative room to breathe, you have to consciously be like, okay, how do I get him into the story without me essentially going on a 30 minute long monologue about lore? How how, can I, how can I ask him questions? How can I engage him in a certain way? And that's, I think that's more specific for like a Dungeons and Dragons or a more combat originated game. It's a game that originated in a wargaming tradition. There are games like Starcrossed and other games, which I haven't gotten the chance to play yet, but I know those games are much more like prompt focused and storytelling focused. And I know those are, have, are a much different experience than what I've done with D&D. So I imagine then your approach to DMing D&D, a game meant for, gosh, groups of anywhere from like three to seven mm-hmm. players, is different when it's just yep. one-on-one. Can you give me some examples? Like you were just asking some questions, like how do I prompt them? Yeah. What have you found that works for you? Um, so I know for me, and something that, well, me and Dennis had talked about along back when we were starting out and figuring out how to do one-on-one was D&D is a very, very encounter-focused game. Like that's the a lot of the crux of what D&D is, is encountering things and either hack and slashing them or finding other ways. But when you are a single character, you don't have like a party healer to rely on. You, you, don't, you are the party healer. You are also the party DPS and the tank, all of it. So it's, it's like that, that traditional strategy that goes into wargaming kind of gets thrown out the window. Dennis and I actually have two different approaches to it. For him, it was more like, please play someone with healing spells so you can heal yourself. Also, I'm just going to be very gentle with the combat. Uh, For me, though, I was like, I found that I like a very cinematic storytelling. A lot of my encounters are not necessarily go in, kill the thing, and then loot your spoils. For me, a lot of my encounters were you have to get from the top level of the city all the way down and you've got guards chasing you. You don't have to kill the guards. You just have to get them off your tail. Or, well, things are exploding around you now. Make some dexterity saves and try to get out. And so it's still like that element of challenge and it's still an encounter, but it's more like make saves and try and run and try and get away as quickly as possible rather than focusing solely on you have to defeat this person because that's where the imbalance comes out when a lot of DD monsters are made for larger parties and you are a single character i know mm-hmm. some other people who do uh duet dnd they prefer having like a uh, dm pcs so they'll have party members that are played by the dm both dennis and i didn't want to do that because we th- we find the crux of one-on-one dnd being that sort of disconnect from what traditional D&D parties look like and um, we wanted story-wise to look at these two characters who who have to face their problems on their own where it's 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 sometimes you have to have the courage to face the things that are messing with your life on your own and you have to find that inner strength to look at the world around you and realize I am a single person but I can still change it and that that for us was the crux narratively of why we wanted to do 
one-on-one D&D without having other party members still sort of in play. Yeah, it definitely sounds like a different type of storytelling. And it sounds like y'all have a couple of solutions, characters maybe being a little bit more self-sufficient, but also, I guess, in describing the cinematic games you like to play, it almost feels like the storytelling becomes more uh, your character versus the environment. Yeah that they're in rather than creatures. Yeah, that's what I like to do as a DM. I like presenting more environmental challenges when I DM for him, mainly because if I give him swarms of combat or swarms of like enemies, it's just me rolling dice for a minute and then him rolling one attack roll. And that it's not fun for either of us. And it's also kind of boring to listen to. And it is a podcast. And there's only so many times I can roll a d20 and fail miserably because I don't have great dice luck. But, you know, we try. (laughs) Do you have any particular memorable moments that have come up during your one-on-one game that stick out Um, to you? I have a couple. One is me as a player and one is me as a DM. So the one as a DM happened, it was, I think, our first session where I was, it was my first time DMing one-on-one. And I know I was super nervous about it because, I mean, I had DMed before, but I hadn't done a one-on-one session. And so I was like, I hope this is fun. And his character was on a mission to steal something. And we started off the session in media, uh, in media res, where he was getting away with what the package he had stolen. And it started out with a guard chase. And because the city I had built is, um, is sort of like a canal city, and there's like elevate, like rudimentary elevators that sort of go up and down between the different levels, I basically presented him with the option of, well, you can either run all the way down these levels, or if there's an elevator, you can either take the elevator at normal pace, or you can shoot the gear and just start dropping. And I'm really happy he chose the, I'm going to shoot it and just start dropping. And so I I might have dropped an elevator, like him in an elevator, 10 stories in in episode one of my, or session one of my uh, campaign. Uh, He lived. He did almost roll a nat one. (laughs) No, no, it was, I rolled the nat one. The guard hit one of the ropes holding up the elevator. He didn't fall, but it definitely was like, oh, the elevator's careening and one of the corners is now unstable. When are you going to jump? And so that one was, that was the moment when I felt like I can do this. It was just more of such an exciting scene and it didn't feel like the pace had been slowed because there was only like one player and one DM. Favorite moment as a player though, like I mentioned before, I play a cleric, a very reluctant cleric who has a holy artifact that, through which her god can talk to her. She's not entirely happy with said god choosing her to be a cleric. And at one point, she had a holy nightmare, essentially. And she got really mad when her god wasn't giving her any answers. So she took the holy artifact and licked it. Like, like did not licked it, but like gave it a big, big wad of spit just out of retaliation. And Dennis had me roll, I don't remember what, I think it was like a constitution saving throw or something, Essentially, it was, you just spat on a god, let's see if you die, and I rolled a nat 20, so I critically licked a god, and do nothing about it. I was like, I rolled a nat 20, let me lick the god. And that's my, that's still my favorite nat 20 I've ever rolled. I, 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 oh my gosh, you've got to respect the natural 20. Yeah, I, he was like, literally, if you had rolled anything else, you would have had so much like force damage, but you rolled a nat 20. So I had to let it happen. You just licked the god. Okay, you critically licked it. Fine. That's fine. This is fine. And I was just like, yeah. And that was also one of the moments I realized, wow, I am a gremlin chaos player. Oh my goodness. (laughs) Uh, So aside from one-on-one, you also are involved uh, in D&D and RPGs uh, elsewhere. What would you say is the project or projects uh, that you are most excited about right now? Oh, boy. Oh, there's so many. Hold on. I think right now the project I'm most excited for is that I was recently brought on board as lead writer for The Islands of Sina Una, which is going to be a D&D 5e campaign setting book based very heavily in uh, pre-colonial Filipino mythology. I myself am Filipino. It's something that I, I want to be proud of, but I haven't really necessarily been given an opportunity to be proud of yet. A lot my parents very much are like, be American, be like assimilate, and sort of they've never talked about the Philippines, and they kind of just sort of clam up if I ever ask. And so I'm really excited for this project, because it's given me an avenue through something that I love, like I love gaming, to explore something that is also a part of me and a part of who I am, but a part that has been dormant for so long. 
And it's it's going to be very, I'm very excited to dive into that and look at that part of essentially my identity that I've really haven't been able to look at for 21 years of my life. And so that's something I'm really excited for. I have a couple of other projects in the works, but I don't know if I'm legally allowed to talk about them, but I'm very excited for them. They're just... They're just under NDA, but they're cool. I promise. Well, at the end of this, we'll give you an opportunity to let people know how to follow you so they can hear about those when you can talk about them. But I do have one last Uh question for you as we kind of bring this interview to a close. I'm just wondering, like, from your perspective, what has it meant to you to be a woman in Dungeons and Dragons um, and a woman of color in Dungeons and Dragons? It's, It's something that I, especially like given like with... 2020 and the new year that happened, I've, it's something I've thought about a lot very recently about what what my place in the community is and what my place as a woman of color creator in tabletop gaming is. Um, and a lot of that is because this wasn't something I expected and not in a bad way. I'm, I'm grateful for everything that has happened and I'm grateful for every opportunity that's happened. But literally a year ago, I had played D&D maybe a handful of times and I had published a couple of pay what you want stuff on DMs Guild, not for like, not because I really wanted to, but because I needed something for a portfolio for an internship. And after getting invited, like I got into some community stream games and then I started getting into more campaigns and I started playing and I started writing and I started going to conventions. I like to say I accidentally whoopsed my way into this career, which kind of is a discredit to like, Now I realize saying that is a little bit of a discredit to like the hard work I've put into a lot of writing and stuff. But at the same time, I just, I just kind of kept going because I was like, I, I I didn't expect to get here. And so now looking back at almost a whole year of me being a creator in this space and realizing what it means to be someone who is a visible women of color creator in this community. And I realized what I want to do going forward as a woman of color creator, I actually realized what I want because of my little sister. She has a D&D club at her middle school, but she still isn't afra- is a little afraid to join because none of her other friends want to join yet and she's very nervous about joining about joining, but she still talks about her friends who are or like classmates who are in D&D club and she mentions me and she thinks that I'm so cool because of everything I do. And because of that I realized that the people in her D&D club, the people of her age when they when they start playing D&D, they're not going to be looking to like Gygax or maybe even Matt Mercer or Koval. They're going to be looking towards people like me, like the generation of players above them. So I realized I am the generation of creators that my sister is going to look up to. I want to make her proud. I want to show her that if I can play D&D, then so can she. And hopefully with that, I can encourage more people who look like me, who are women of color and are young and new and haven't really even been playing D&D for a while, but they still love the game. I want to be able to encourage them and show them that it's possible. You may not look like what you think D&D is, but you will and we'll, we'll be loud and we'll make space and we're going to change that. I think that is a worthy goal and a really important one. I want to make my sister proud. I know you are. I'm smiling so big right now. So Mackenzie, if people want to follow you on the interwebs, hear more about Sina Una and all those secret things you have planned, where can they find you? Mostly, I you can find me on Twitter at Mackenzie Lane D.A. So M-A-K-E-N-Z-I-E-L-A-N-E-D-A. That's mostly where you can see where I'm going to be streaming TTRPGs, um, where I'll announce both independent publishing stuff that I do on DMs Guild, as well as uh, my, the collaborations and other secret projects that I talk about. If you want to follow my stuff for Sina Una, the hashtag Sina Una is a good place to just a good uh, tag to follow. One on one D and D. If you want updates on those episodes, you can follow that on Twitter at one on one D and D, which is O N E O N O N E D N D. There's a lot of O's and a lot of N's. Um, <laughs> and so all of the the link to the websites and where you can find the podcast is on that Twitter page as well. And I think that's. I think that's pretty much it. Mostly you can catch me uh, screaming into the void on my personal Twitter account. So, Mackenzie, it's been a blast chatting this with you. This has been amazing. This is so much fun. Luciella Elizabeth Scarlett is an Emmy-nominated writer, designer, and illustrator based in Australia. 
She's also aromantic and asexual, traits that come through in her game design, such as Two Aromantics, a solo adventure for 5th edition D&D, and Coven, an aromantic fantasy tabletop role-playing game currently in development. In this audio story, sponsored by RPG Writer Workshop, Luciella shares what it's like to be Aero Ace in a seemingly romantic world. I was 23 years old when I first stumbled across the terms asexual and aromantic. Growing up, I had never been particularly interested in sex or dating. I didn't even have celebrity crushes. I'd skipped the high school dance because the very idea tired me out. Maybe I should have been relieved to know that I wasn't just defective, and that there are others out there who felt the same way. But for the most part, I was devastated to learn that the fairy tale romance I'd dreamt of would never come true. Even if I'd gotten used to dodging questions about why I was still single, part of me had always been saying, not yet, rather than not ever. After all, if there was anything I'd learned from books, movies, music, and games, it was that there was no such thing as a happy ending without romance. I never wanted to be some side character left behind, alone and miserable at the end of the story. I don't think that romance itself is toxic, but I think a lot of the stories that we tell about it are. Romance may be very special for many people, but it's not the only kind of love, nor is it the only means to a happy life. When the media we consume fixates on telling the same type of love story again and again, it tells us not only that there is a single perfect template that romantic relationships must follow, but also that other forms of love, especially friendships, are lesser, invalid, or incomplete. If we start to challenge those norms, then we can tell more diverse and interesting stories. And if we hear more diverse and interesting stories, then it becomes easier to challenge those norms. That's why I believe that stories can shape the world. I'd like to tell you one of my own. Flory woke early on the morning of his 15th birthday. He completed his customary glance around to confirm that yes, he still had no familiar, followed by his customary sigh of resignation as he got up out of bed, dressed quietly, and headed downstairs. Flory lived in a two-story house with his ma, his mama, his granny, and his pop. Mama had claimed her title by defeating ma in a rock-paper-scissors battle for the title of mum A. Ma was ma because she had refused to let her only child call her mum B. The story thickened with the revelation that pop was pop because when ma had asked if he wanted to be grandpa or granddad, he said anything except pop, and then granny was just granny because... Well, that was about the part in the story where she'd usually interrupt to say, Are you feeding your child tall tales again? Flory loved each of them to bits, but for the moment at least, he didn't want to see any of them. He hoped that they could understand that. It was his birthday, after all. He left a brief note to explain where he would be, and was out of the house before anyone could even say good morning. The sun was only just rising as he headed out, but a few others were already tending to gardens or preparing for work. A plump brunette woman spotted him and waved cheerfully. Happy birthday, Flory, she called. Lena, he acknowledged. Light flashed and he found the little fox that was Lena's familiar winding its way around his legs. He manoeuvred himself carefully around the small glowing creature that seemed determined to trip him up. Lena called out an exasperated apology and hurried over to scold her familiar, while Flory excused himself and headed onwards, trying not to let his low mood show. He'd been told not to worry about the fact that his own familiar hadn't emerged yet. It happened at different times to everyone, of course, but to reach his 15th birthday without that milestone was practically unheard of. More recently, Flory's parents had taken to telling him that it would be alright even if he never gained a familiar at all. Even Min, the legendary hero of Saranel village, who was honoured by a statue at the village centre, had been rumoured not to have a familiar. Ma liked to emphasise that fact when she would tell him stories, as if the idea was supposed to be comforting to him. Flory grimaced at the thought. Mom meant well, but being compared to a legendary hero wasn't much of an improvement on being treated like a child. He reached the outskirts of the village and kept walking. He didn't need to do any real work today, and Mama had even cancelled his lessons as a birthday treat. But doing nothing didn't sit well with Flory. He could at least go hunting, and perhaps find some berries if there were any to be found this late in the season. After a few hours of travel through the forest, he'd found no berries, but had managed to fill his basket with mushrooms and wild vegetables. He'd even caught a pair of rabbits, and took them to a nearby stream to dress and clean. 
He was rinsing his hands one final time when he looked up and jolted in surprise. A teenage girl with long dark hair and amber skin stood directly before him in the stream. Are you lost by any chance? she asked. Or maybe, were you looking for Clarabeth's fountain? Flory inspected her unfamiliar face with surprise. He was fairly confident that he had met anyone close to his age who was in the area. Remembering the question, he answered, Well, no, I came here to hunt, but I know how to get home from here. The girl seemed strangely disappointed by his answer. So you didn't come to make a wish? she asked. A wish? Flory echoed. I'm sorry, I don't know what you mean. The girl pouted briefly, but seemed to brighten as she said, Well, since you're here anyway, why don't I show you? Come on then. It was all the warning she gave before she scurried off to Flory's left. He gathered his wits and his belongings and scrambled after her. The ground sloped up sharply and their walk soon turned into a climb. The girl disappeared for a moment as she reached the top of a hill before eagerly extending a hand to help Flory up. He clambered over the edge to find a broad circular spring fed by twin waterfalls. An old mossy shrine was nestled between them which looked as though it hadn't been visited in a very long time. The spring was unusually deep, and gently rippling water was clear enough to show all the way to the bottom, where something glowed with a white light. Flory skimmed his hand over the water, focusing his senses as he had been taught. A shockingly powerful strain of purification magic was present in the spring. Flory had been taught that wild magic sometimes flared up within the Feywoods, but he rarely saw it himself, let alone to this degree. He looked up to find the girl seated between the two waterfalls, dipping her feet in the pool. He was about to ask for an explanation when he suddenly noticed that her form was slightly transparent. He could see the rocks and the shrine that sat behind her. I'm not going to hurt you, she assured him quickly as he started to scramble back in alarm. My name is Clarabeth. You can think of me as a guardian spirit, I suppose. I haven't had visitors in, in a while, but people used to come here and make wishes. I don't always grant them, of course. Sometimes people wish for bad things, after all. Her face darkened momentarily. But even if I can't promise to grant every wish, I can at least hear you out. So tell me, is there something I can help with? Flory hesitated. Clarabeth didn't seem unfriendly, but he knew that spirits could be dangerous. Still, if she really could grant wishes... I'm 15 years old, and I still don't have a familiar, he told her reluctantly. Is that something you can fix? Clarabeth's frown returned immediately. Why do people keep asking for that? Huh? Annoying little creatures, she complained, always getting in the way and causing trouble. Why did humans go and decide that they were so important? Plenty of you don't have them. Oh yeah? Flory challenged. Then where are all those people without familiars? Listen, I'm the only one like me in the whole village, except for maybe a few children and... And I guess that statue of some legendary hero who left long ago. Don't say it isn't a big deal when it is. For a long moment, all Flory could hear was the sound of splashing water as Clarabeth grappled with his words. You're right, she said at last. I shouldn't have been so dismissive. I can't grant that wish of yours. But I wasn't lying, you know. There are people like you out there. All you have to do is find them. Think about it, won't you? When he looked up, Clarabeth was gone, leaving nothing but the old, battered shrine. Sure, Flory answered. I'll think about it. And he did think about it. He thought about it all the way while he was making his way back home, taking extra care not to get lost. He thought about it all the way until he arrived at his house, opened the door, and was knocked off his feet by his ma's exuberant dog familiar. Flory, his ma cried out, wrestling the creature back from him. I saw your note. But what are you doing going off and hunting alone on your birthday? Hmm? Is everything all right? She added upon noticing his preoccupation. Flory looked down, fiddling with his basket as he considered a selfish request. It was selfish after all, wasn't it? That was why he'd never asked. It wasn't as if the thought had never occurred to him before, but the very idea of leaving the Feywoods, the place he had lived his entire life, the place that was several dangerous days of travel away from any major city, let alone asking his family to come with him. Flory, his ma called again, sounding increasingly concerned. 
Just say it, something within him urged, and for once he did. Ma, he said, I think I know what I want for my birthday. Want to hear more from Luciella? Follow her at Luciella E-S on Twitter. That's L-U-C-I-E-L-L-A-E-S. Thank you, Luciella, Mackenzie, and Linda for sharing your stories with Behold Her. Thank you, Rudy Basso, for editing, as always, an RPG Writer Workshop for sponsoring our audio story this episode. Please visit patreon.com slash beholdher to learn how you can help make this podcast happen, or just go read what we have in store for the future. I promise you'll love it. Love it. Get it? 